Should you be a skeptic? What really was the ancient philosophy, and how has it changed over the millennia? Hello, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You are listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Today I'm speaking with Richard Bett, professor of philosophy and classics at John Hopkins University and author of How to Keep an Open Mind, an ancient guide to thinking like a skeptic. We discuss the pros and cons of the only Greek skeptic whose work has survived, Sextus Empiricus, and what we should take away from this very interesting school of thought. But before we begin, a quick thank you to our Classical Wisdom Society members who make this podcast possible. If you would like to become a society member and help support the classics, please go to classicalwisdom.com and click start here. Now, how exactly can ancient skepticism help you attain tranquility by learning to suspend judgment? Uh, I want to say thank you, first off, for, for taking the time to talk to me today. And I think it's just really interesting skepticism um, because I, I feel like there's quite a big difference between skepticism as how people say it today versus skepticism as an ancient philosophy. And indeed, right now, saying somebody's a skeptic is almost like, a bad word. So um, perhaps the best way to start is to just explain the differences between what we think of a skeptic is today and, and what the ancient philosophy actually was. Sure, yeah. And I think, I mean, there is there's certainly some overlap. I mean, yeah, I mean, a skeptical person, as we think of it today, is someone who's inclined to be doubtful, who doesn't accept anything without a lot of, you know, persuasion. Um, and yeah, in some contexts that can be viewed as a bad thing, sure. Um, the ancient skeptics, or I'll, I'll focus on Sextus Empiricus, whose writings we have, um, I mean, he's, he certainly has something in common with that person, but he's quite a bit more single-minded about it. I mean, he has a set of techniques to ensure that he never will accept anything, or at least anything about the real nature of the world, um, or, or he or whoever the techniques are applied, on, uh, applied to. Um, now, yeah, I mean, there's also the use of the term skeptical in modern philosophy, which where it tends to mean somebody who thinks it's impossible to know anything about some domain, about the nature of the external world, about other minds, things like that. Um, ancient skepticism is different from that because, I mean, that's a definite view. It's a negative view, but it's a definite view. Ancient skepticism is in the business of avoiding definite views altogether. Um, and in that respect, maybe has more in common with, you know, skepticism as we think of it in just kind of ordinary language. So that's the basic idea um, is, yeah, the ancient skeptic has a set of techniques for generating suspension of judgment. And yeah, Sextus thinks that's a good thing. Uh, he, he thinks that leads to tranquility. And so it's, you know, a, um, a way of life that is, as far as he's concerned, um, preferable to others. So I guess we sort of have like a, a spectrum of understanding skepticism that sort of spreads across sort of modern to ancient times. So maybe at the very weakest, it's like today just saying somebody is doubtful to a set of criteria of how to understand the world, maybe with regards to, say, the scientific investigations to being able to 
question whether we can ever know something to believing we can never ever understand anything. Um, okay, yeah, all, all of those could be called skepticism at some time or place, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, as you indicated, I mean, um, a skeptical attitude in scientific inquiry can be a good thing. I mean, it makes you, uh, you know, really test your ideas before you come to accept a theory, um, and you know, that's generally viewed as a as a virtue uh, in scientific or, or other kinds of discovery. Yeah. It's amazing because it is just like one word that can encompass so much and can have so many different connotations depending on what you're talking about. But um, I think for us kind of focusing on skepticism, maybe with the biggest uh, as regards to the philosophy, um, I think for a lot of people who don't know really anything about the ancient philosophy, maybe we can actually back up a little bit and talk about just the history of skepticism because it's mm -hmm. got a great ancient history. Um, and I think it even includes right. Indian history as well. Right? Well, maybe. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a fascinating and I think probably unsolvable question. But yeah, so right. I mean, Sextus Empiricus is near the end of uh, antiquity. I mean, we don't know when, when he lived, but probably around 200 AD or CE. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a tradition that he belongs to, and he calls himself a Pyrrhonist skeptic. And that name goes back to the figure, obscure figure of Pyrrho, um, who lived in around 300 BCE, so almost like 500 years before Sextus himself. Uh, and yes, there is a story that he accompanied Alexander the Great on his campaigns that you know, went eastward from Greece a long way and got as far as India. And yeah, we're told uh, in India, or at least that's where we guess it was, um, he met some so-called naked wise men um, and that he developed his ideas based on that, um, based on those meetings. Um, it's very hard to know how much credibility to place in that. Uh, I mean, I think that there's plenty of resources within Greek thought, earlier Greek thought itself, that would explain why somebody could come along with Pyrrho's ideas. But yeah, maybe he did get some inspiration from um, some kind of, you know, ancient gurus uh, in India or that general region of the world. Um, and certainly, yeah, I mean, people often will notice a certain kind of similarity between the skeptical attitude in the ancient Greek tradition and uh, Buddhism. Um, but yeah, so there's the Pyrrhonist tradition, but even uh, before that, I mean, Questioning the possibility of knowledge starts almost as soon as people start engaging in sort of systematic inquiry um, that we now would call philosophy. They didn't call it that themselves right away. Um, so yeah, uh, so, and, and yes, the, the more sort of negative claim that knowledge is impossible, you start to get examples of that um, quite early in, in Greek thought. Um, but yes, the, the idea of a sort of systematic and, uh, and way, a way of life uh, that we can call skepticism, that really originates with Pyrrho. Um, and yeah, it, it's not a continuous tradition from Pyrrho to Sextus. Pyrrho had a few immediate successes. And then the idea was kind of revived in the first century BCE uh, by another obscure figure called Inesidemus. And then it's the tradition from that that leads to Sextus. And we don't know, we know a few names between uh, Inesidemus and Sextus, but don't have any real details. 
Yeah, um, it, it's really amazing. I, I got to say just because um, I think previously, even for myself, I sort of thought skepticism was sort of more of a niche philosophical, uh, philosophical school of thought from the ancient world. And I guess I hadn't realized just how integral it can be to just philosophy in and of itself. Uh, well, I think that's right. And I mean, that's still true today. I mean, people still agonize about, you know, what do you do about skepticism? Um, and it, I mean, in, in modern European thought, it particularly is associated with Descartes and a, a, a number of people after that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I haven't even mentioned there's another tradition of ancient skepticism that is in uh, Plato's Academy. Um, and the details of that are less clear because, again, we don't have any writings. Uh, and in fact, the two major figures in that tradition didn't write anything. Um, but yes, uh, the, for a couple of centuries, I mean, around from around, let's say, 250 BCE till the early first century, um, the academy, the school founded by Plato, was skeptical in outlook. And yet was integral in debates with the other schools at the time, especially the Stoics. So yeah, I mean, there are, there are sort of centuries long, yeah, a couple of centuries long face-offs between the academic skeptics and the Stoics um, on, on certain issues. So yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think it is a niche school in the sense that it never got the same level of sort of public acceptance that Stoicism or Epicureanism did, um, but it's certainly involved in sort of elaborate debates with those other schools and, and takes on uh, different uh, ancient philosophies as well besides that. Now, I was going to ask, you know, it's interesting because I think there has been a, a renewal of interest in Stoicism and to a certain extent Epicureanism as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think skepticism is going to enjoy this, this same uh, new attention or is it too conflated with the modern interpretation? Well, um, maybe, I think it could. I mean, um, I think I'm, I've maybe tried to do a little bit of that myself in recent years. Um, so yeah, a, a collection of essays uh, that I published a couple of years ago, it's called How to Be a Pyrrhonist. And a number of those essays do sort of explore how much of this attitude is still kind of viable for us today. Uh, and, and the new book, with the, the translations of Sextus, I mean, that, that has the same sort of general um, goal as well. And I'm not the only one. I mean, yeah, there, there are, I can think of at least one other person who's working on a book that, I mean, she thinks is gonna have the same sort of general, uh, general plan, general um, aspirations. Um, so yeah, that, there's a bit of it, but but it, <clears throat> I think it hasn't achieved the degree of um, sort of uptake that um, sort of neo-stoicism has in recent years. We need stepticon or something like that. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll we'll see. <clears throat> I mean, the, the, you know, there there are blogs and things that are you know called the skeptic and things like that. Um, but I think that I mean that's a somewhat broader notion of what skepticism is. So as I said, none of these are unrelated. Uh, to the ancient philosophy entirely. Now, I really like to get into your book and some of the, the details of skepticism, but beforehand, I just want to sort of finish up with sort of the historical mm -hmm. background and context. Um, yeah. You have mentioned Sextus uh, Empiricus quite a few times. Uh, mm -hmm. So he's the only Greek skeptic whose works have survived. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. So... Um, um, do, do we, what other sources do we have for skepticism? Is he our only one? Well, he, he's, he's the only card-carrying skeptic 
Um, but beyond that, um, <clears throat> there's this book called um, Lives of the Philosophers by this guy Diogenes Laertius. Um, I actually have a new translation of it right here. Uh, um, <clears throat> and yeah, in the course of that, I mean, he, he has a life of Pyrrho, the founder of uh, Pyrrhonist skepticism. Um, and another shorter life of Pyrrho's disciple, Timon. Um, and within that, there's quite a lot of description of the skeptical view. So that's an interesting sort of supplement to Sextus. And it's interesting to see the things that, that they have in common and things where they don't quite say the same thing. Um, so that's another source. Um, besides that, uh, Cicero was a student in the, at the very tail end of the academic tradition of skepticism. Um, and so he wrote a book called Academica, uh, which has not survived in, as a whole, but quite a bit of it has survived. And, and that's another very important source for skepticism in this acad other academic tradition. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, those are the main um, other sources. Uh, aside from that, there are other sort of bits and pieces that you find in later antiquity of people referring to skeptics. Um, but yeah, that, that's sort of hit or miss. So, so Sextus is not the only source, but as I say, he's the only one um, who was a skeptic himself of whom we have voluminous writings. Well, I should say also, yeah, that there are some fragments. Uh, so Pyrrho's disciple Timon wrote, well, he wrote a bunch of things, but uh, he wrote verses and a number of those verses have survived. Um, so that's as fragments quoted by other ancient authors. So that's another source for sort of an earlier stage, but that's quite difficult to interpret because it's only little bits and pieces. You, you mentioned Cicero. So is it, and this was actually going to be a question I, I was going to ask before when we were talking about these sort of three different kind of popular philosophies happening at the same time. Is mm -hmm. it possible to be a Stoic and a skeptic at the same time? Well, that's interesting because I mean, Cicero in a way does that. I mean, you know, he, he calls himself an academic, and um, they didn't use the term skeptic of themselves, but it was used about them from pretty early on. Um, but he, I mean, his version of skepticism is a somewhat more sort of muted one than Sextus's. And for him, yeah, you can be looking for the truth, you can have some views, you just mustn't be sure about them. And you just must always be willing to revise them and never be never claim to have you know, achieved the definite uh, final truth about things. So from that point of view, you, know, you can have views so long as you're suitably sort of tentative about them. Uh, and in his own writing, um, often it seems like uh, the stoic view of things is the one that he is more uh, the most attracted to. So, I mean, there are a number of uh, philosophical works of his that talk about different, different outlooks um, on ends, De Finibus is a good example. So it talks about, talks about the Epicureans. He's not a fan of the Epicureans um, and talks about the Stoics. He's quite a bit more sympathetic to them. So yeah, in a sense, if, you, if you're not too radical in your skepticism, um, if your skepticism allows for you to hold views so long as they're merely tentative, then yes, you can be a skeptic and a Stoic. Um, but if, if you go all the way with, with Sextus himself, and uh, only permit suspension of judgment. In how Sextus advocated and provided a set of techniques to achieve a mm -hmm. radical suspension of judgment about the way things really are. 
yeah. which I think is really, there's a lot to, to delve into that. So maybe we should start off with maybe what a few of these techniques are and why we should suspend judgment in the first place. Okay, well, um, so I mean, most generally, it's, it's simply a technique of assembling opposing ideas arguments, impressions on any given topic. So, I mean, he says what skepticism is, it's an ability to do this assembling of opposing views uh, in such a way that they are of what he calls equal strength. Um, and if they're of equal strength, that is they each strike you as uh, you know, equally plausible, equally convincing, then you'll have no choice but to suspend judgment. Um, and the reason why that's a good thing from his point of view is because it leads to tranquility. Um, and the, way, the way he describes it is uh, you start out, uh, the skeptic starts out as somebody who's trying to discover the truth and get tranquility that way. And they keep on finding, well, there's all these opposing views of things. And so they end up not discovering the truth uh, and they end up suspending judgment. And when that has happened enough times, they find themselves um, getting that, I mean, they thought they were going to get tranquility through discovering the truth. They find they get the tranquility through the suspension of judgment that they find themselves pushed to again and again. And so then it sort of morphs into a project of keeping and sustaining the suspension of judgment. Um, and yeah, as far as you know, specific techniques are concerned, I mean, the most obvious are uh, what he calls the modes. Um, which are sort of ready-made forms of um, skeptical opposition. Um, and so, for example, uh, I mean, there's a set of 10 modes. Um, and the first one is <clears throat> different impressions that humans and animals have. So, you know, we don't see the same things the same way as animals do. Who's to say which of us get at the way things really are? Uh, we've got to suspend judgment. Uh, Second one is differences, different impressions of different humans, and you know maybe our different um, different sort of physiologies causes us to see things different ways. Maybe different opinions will make us see things different ways. Again, who's to say who's correct? And then the third one is differences between different senses, and so even of the same person. So then uh, you know what how things may look one way, but they may feel another way, or something like that. Again. Uh, you're leading to suspension of judgment. So the whole series of um, sort of oppositions on a certain topic that will, um, again, produce the same result. Um, uh, the other way that Sextus himself does it, and, and in most of his writings, is simply um, on philosophical topics of various kinds, collect the opposing views of the other uh, non-skeptical philosophers, and which is why he's actually, he's, he's a quite an important source of evidence for us for some of the other, uh, you know, some of the other schools. Um, so in some cases, he gives us information which we don't have from anywhere else. Um, but, but from his point of view, the, the goal is to uh, line up all these opposing views uh, and generate, again, generate suspension of judgment that way. And if there aren't existing oppositions among the non-skeptical views, he'll think up one himself to, you know, balance the positive arguments of the non-skeptic. Um, so some, some, you know, sometimes the oppositions are created by the skeptic. Sometimes he just sort of lays out views that are held by others and saying, "See, they hold opposing views. We got to suspend judgment." So yeah, and he does, and he does it across the whole field of philosophy. That is logic, physics, and ethics. Those are the three main uh, fields of philosophy in later antiquity. 
And he also does it with um, other kinds of expert knowledge as considered at the time. So yeah, one of his works is about um, six different specialized fields. So grammar, rhetoric, geometry, arithmetic, astrology, and music theory. And it's the same technique again. You have opposing views, you suspend judgment. Um, but, but yes, the, the outcome, according to him, is tranquility. And that's what makes it all worthwhile, as far as he's concerned. Can you suspend judgment and then come to a conclusion at the end? Like I, when I think of it, you're like, it, it's this great idea with regards to steel manning your opponent's ideas, which mm -hmm used in sort of a modern context is a way that we can kind of appreciate and understand what the opposition's points are. And then, and then yeah. if we can suspend judgment long enough to actually listen to the other side, mm -hmm. which I think is a problem a lot of people have, yeah. then, then you can use that to both appreciate where your opponent's coming from, but then have a stronger position yourself at the end. But I guess in my mind, that always assumed that at the end, you could still have a a judgment of some sort, you just yeah. suspended judgment long enough to be able to come to a better, more truthful, honest conclusion. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree with you. That's an uh, entirely reasonable thing to do, um, but that wouldn't be Sextus's um, model. For him, uh, suspension of judgment is what he's aiming for, um, and sliding into the holding of views, that would be, as far as him, that, that would be a problem as far as he's concerned. But that, I mean, that's one aspect where I think, you know, we might not want to go with him 100%. We might want to sort of pick and choose what we take from him because, yeah, I mean, I don't think suspension of judgment is, well, first of all, I don't think it's gonna to lead to tranquility all the time. And second, I don't think it's possible for us given how much we know about the world, which is much more than what he did. <laughs> Well, and I guess just to live life without ever having any judgment, I mean, seems like it would be hard to accomplish anything. Well, yes. Now, I mean, he's well aware of that issue and what he says about it. And, and I mean, it, already in antiquity, there was a standard criticism of the skeptics that, you know, you can't do anything if you don't have any, any definite views. Uh, what he says is, well, uh, no, you can, you can go along with the way things appear, that's fine. Uh, and, you know, things strike you in a certain way and you can you know, go with the appearances um, without ever committing yourselves to how things really are. Um, so, you know, honey tastes sweet and that affects, you know, what we do with it. Uh, and that's fine. But you're not going to investigate the real nature of honey um, and you don't care about that. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, he, as far as he's concerned, the appearances are quite sufficient for making decisions and leading a normal life. In fact, he claims that the skeptic, or sometimes that the skeptic is closer to uh, sort of regular people uh, than these highfalutin abstract theorists of other philosophies. Um, that's a highly debatable issue, I think, but, but, but yeah, he, he sometimes will make this sort of claim, you know, I'm on the side of ordinary life as opposed to these pointy-headed um, Stoics and Epicureans uh, kind of thing. Um, so yes, uh, uh, he thinks there's a quite adequate response to the, the so-called inactivity uh, objection. Um, and it just says, go along with the way things appear and, and what more do you need? 
So it, it almost seems like he's the opposite of Plato. Like, just be happy with the shadows in the wall cave and don't even try to know what the forms are because you won't know them. It's impossible to know them. Content yourself with the show. Yeah, I, I, that's very interesting. And in fact, yeah, I mean, um, a number of years ago, I wrote a book on the original skeptic Pyrrho. And yeah, the, the way that I described Pyrrho's views essentially was um, Plato without the transcendent unchanging forms. You just have the messy, changeable, regular world around us. Um, and yeah, so I think and, and that aspect, I mean, the, maybe some differences between Pyrrho and Sextus, but that aspect of it I think, goes through that whole tradition. Now in the ancient world, would they have taken the fullest extreme of Sextus's views or would they have wanted to sort of take the first half of suspension of judgment like maybe we are inclined to do today as well? I mean, was he taken as he was then or were people also trying to cherry pick back then? Like what, what well, did Cicero think, I guess? I mean, he's, he doesn't seem to get much um, play in the ancient world. I mean, there's, there are very few references to him um, in other ancient texts. I mean, uh, this guy Diogenes Laertius does refer to him and, and gives, I mean, in the, in the life of, Lives of Pyrrho and Timon that I referred to, um, he gives a whole sort of succession of skeptics, um, not clear how much of it to believe, but he mentions Sextus in there, and he mentions a student of Sextus who we otherwise know nothing about. So Diogenes is at least a generation later than Sextus. Um, but yeah, references to Sextus in later antiquity are pretty rare. Um, so we really don't know much at all about how he was received um, in antiquity. Um, he, I mean, and he seemed, yeah, he seems to be sort of strangely isolated from his own time and place. So, so I think, yeah, he, uh, he, he didn't get much of a reception uh, in the ancient world. It's in the early modern period, he's rediscovered. Um, and that's when uh, skepticism came to be a major topic uh, in Western philosophy uh, again. Um, and since then, he's been taken seriously by a lot of different philosophers. But yes, very few people took him seriously um, in his own time. Is that just because he went so far, I guess? <laughs> well, or who knows why? I mean, we, we really know almost nothing about him as a person. Uh, and I mean, he may have just lived in some backwater and just not been known about. Um, Although, I mean, he, he presents himself as sort of one of a group of skeptics, but maybe they were all in, a, in some little teeny corner of the Roman Empire or something. Just being super tranquil, not making any judgments. Well, well sure, yeah. <laughs> why, why, should, why should they worry about that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
Classical Wisdom Society members can listen to the entire podcast on classicalwisdom.com. You can also find Professor Bet's books, including How to Keep an Open Mind, An Ancient Guide to Thinking Like a Skeptic, at https press.princeton.edu slash r-authors slash bet-richard.